Welcome to the Depth and Light Podcast. I'm your host, J.D. Pirtle. Today we'll be talking to nonprofit leader, educator, and author, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Dr. Lyon is the author of the graphic novel, No Small Plans, the forthcoming graphic novel, Washington By and By, and numerous curricular tools. A fierce advocate for diversity and inclusion in STEM, civic education, and urban planning, Lyon was recently appointed Executive Director of Illinois Humanities. Make no little plans. They have no magic to stir men's blood and probably themselves will not be realized. Make big plans. Aim high in hope and work. These are the famous words of Daniel Burnham, an architect who shaped the plans of cities like Chicago, Washington, D.C., Manila, and San Francisco. He designed many iconic buildings throughout his career, including the Flatiron Building in New York, the Merchants Exchange Building in San Francisco, and the Rookery in Chicago. Attracting the attention of some local business leaders after his success as director of works for the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, he and co-author Edward H. Bennett created the Plan of Chicago in 1909. The Plan of Chicago was a comprehensive vision for a city experiencing intense growth. Just to give you an idea of how much growth we're talking about here, Burnham and his family moved to Chicago from New York in 1854. Burnham was eight years old at the time. The Chicago Burnham encountered had approximately 50,000 people. When he died in 1912, Chicago's population had swelled to three and a half million people. The Chicago plan included not only improvements to streets, parks, railroads, and harbor facilities, but also a vast lakeshore park system. In 1911, the year before Burnham died, the Wacker Manual was published. The Wacker Manual was an illustrated guide intended for eighth graders, which encouraged the adoption of the plan of Chicago and detailed ways in which young people could get involved with the plan. In 2016, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon and Eyes of the Cat Studio released No Small Plans, a graphic novel which was inspired by the Wacker Manual. No Small Plans is separated into three sections covering three different eras. Set in the years 1928, 2017, and 2211, it follows a group of young people encountering and interacting with Chicago in each time period. Although I read a lot about Daniel Burnham and some architecture classes I took in college, It was only after reading No Small Plans that I began really thinking about its impact on the city I've lived in for almost 10 years. I live in the heart of downtown Chicago, an area referred to as The Loop. Walking four or so blocks to meet Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, or Gabe for short, I pass half a dozen buildings designed by Burnham. Just before I turn right on Monroe Street, I can see a little glimpse of just one of the sections of the Lakeshore Park system here in Chicago. Burnham would probably be shocked and hopefully a little pleased to see Millennium Park, with its modern architectural works by Frank Gehry and popular sculptures like Cloudgate, a seamless and giant chrome shape affectionately known as the Bean. Throughout my short walk, I wonder what aspects of Chicago were influenced by Burnham and what Chicago might have become had he not created such a forward-thinking plan. It's not hard to imagine a Chicago without Burnham and others like him, with the lakeshore choked with factories and the side effects of all manner of industrial processes. Luckily, that's not the Chicago we have. I'm heading to meet Gabe at the offices of Illinois Humanities, which is located in a building in the loop which has alternately been called the Edison and the Commercial National Bank Building, but it's currently being rebranded by its owners as simply the National. The 20-story high-rise has housed a bank, the Electric Utility Commonwealth Edison, or ComEd, and the headquarters of the Chicago Public Schools in its long history. And it was designed by, you guessed it, Daniel Burnham. So Gabe, I just want to say thank you so much for sitting down with me and taking time out of your day to do this. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Awesome. Me too. 
So um, to kick it off, you recently left your role as Vice President of Education and Experience at the Chicago Architecture Foundation and started a new role as an Executive Director of Illinois Humanities. So I'm just wondering, what, is, what does Illinois Humanities do and what are you excited about accomplishing here? I, uh, first of all, this is my first official conversation in my new role, so thank you very much for the opportunity. The Illinois Humanities Council, um, Illinois Humanities is the official name, was actually set up in the 70s along with 55 other councils. So every state and US territory has a council. And the idea is that we're essentially an arm of the National Endowment for the Humanities. So coming mm -hmm. out of World War II, coming out of major investments in science, there was some very serious concerns at the national level that the skill set that humanities brings, mm. the ability to deliberate, to debate, to think critically, to have our lives enriched mm. by the humanities, by the exploration of what makes us human, that those had really become quite severely neglected. And one concern was that the absence of that, the mm. absence of humanities and the absence of time to practice those things would have an impact on our ability to function as a democratic society. So when these wow. councils got set up, the idea was not only should the federal government issue grants and invest in programming, but that at every local level, there should be an, uh, an arm, a council that was really focused on what that state or territory needed. So that's really the history and legacy of what is Illinois Humanities. Mm -hmm. um, Illinois Humanities focuses on leveraging the humanities to inform public policy. People are probably familiar with the Chicago Humanities Festival. That actually spun out of Illinois Humanities. So it's its own independent event organization, um, but it was birthed out of Illinois Humanities. Hmm. Interesting. So really, it seems like now we need this more than ever. I think we do need this more than ever. I mean, I could not be more thrilled to be at this organization at this moment in time, first and foremost because of the mission, and secondly because the portfolio of programs here spans grant making. So we actually mm -hmm. give grants, we raise money and then re-grant it to organizations and individuals who are convening and starting and pursuing dialogues. We run our own programming. One of my favorite mm -hmm. programs is something called the Odyssey Project, which enables mm -hmm. adults who have never taken a course in humanities, maybe they never even graduated high school, never had the opportunity to, as an adult, take a really rich humanities course mm -hmm. and they earn college credit. Um, we have a big initiative right now called Envisioning Justice, which enables attention and transparency to the ways in which people's lives are affected by the justice system. And that could be everything from interpretive dance to writing to mm -hmm. performance to an exhibition that will be opening um, in August. So we have a portfolio that's direct service, that's re-granting, and that's also a really a, a forum for exploring ideas that are at the heart of what makes Illinois, Illinois. That's so great. I notice a lot in the work I do with schools where we're focusing so much on STEM, the humanities is really left out. And I kind of feel like STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics without humanities is really kind of a one note thing or just a missed opportunity. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up. Um, uh, JD, you've known me for a long time, so you know I've actually spent the last 20 years immersed in the world of science education and really looking at science 
and technology through the lens of access and equity. So I worked in science and technology um, through the nonprofit I founded, Project Exploration, but really looking at how do you make sure that the power of science is a way to approach the world, that that's actually available to everybody, particularly young people of color, students who struggle in school. I think it's really wonderful for me personally to have spent so much time in the world of science and to understand science and technology as a social justice endeavor and now right. to be in some ways back to humanities, which is where I got my, my own start intellectually and socially. Sure. Yeah. So speaking of your background, I, it's really interesting to me with a bachelor's and master's degree in history and a PhD in curriculum studies, how has your study of history kind of informed the work you do um, past and present? History, for me, is a way of understanding the world. So I was trained as a historian at the University of Chicago. I studied medieval religious mysticism for oh. my bachelor's, and I studied the history of anthropology for my master's. Interesting. But in both of those cases, the focus was on text, on understanding the context for text, um, thinking about the way in which you in, interpret in a moment in time. And so now in this role, for example, the fact that I really appreciate archiving collections, source material, documentation, mm -hmm. the, the value of those things, um, of course, is a real asset for this role. But I think sure. the other thing is being able to come through uh, an academic experience, both in history and then in education with an appreciation for discussion mm -hmm. and for being able to, to think about the fact that we are all being and becoming, that drives a lot of my approach to both leadership mm -hmm. in the nonprofit management sense, but also my approach to, to program and to convening people. So kind of leading off kind of toward the civic engagement, because that's something that I've known you've advocated for for a long time. What advice do you have for educators looking to encourage more or greater civic engagement from their students? I really benefited at the University of Illinois at Chicago by the community of educators I was surrounded by. So in the pursuit of my doctorate, one piece was just doing the work of research and the the physical act of research and writing. Sure. But what was much more important actually was being surrounded by people who every day were thinking about things like, how do we make curriculum relevant? How do we tie what is happening in the classroom to young people's lives? And in my work with the small schools workshop at UIC, which was very active in the 90s and early 2000s, really mm -hmm. thinking about what does it mean to create school as a center for conversations about um, about life and what matters. So how do you personalize learning? How mm -hmm. do you make work meaningful? How do you make curriculum explicit? And those were things that are very important to me. I learned an enormous amount from the community of educators I was part of. And at the end of the day, if work is meaningful and tied to people's lives, it automatically enables civic participation. Sure. It's when work isn't meaningful, when work is not connected to your real life experience that we have to find ways to open the door to thinking about participation. What is your voice? How do you play a role in designing the experiences of your life or 
in the built environment, the places and spaces where you live and learn. So it's really that fragmentation that makes young people have to figure out how to learn civic engagement, whereas mm -hmm. if curriculum was tied to their lives and we were really focused on students as individuals um, and as part of community, it would be much more natural. I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know. If oh, no, that, that totally makes question. sense. I think that's so great. Um, and that, you know, I mean, I've noticed as a teacher and I think a lot of teacher, teachers observe that when the kids actually care about the project, when it is relevant, when it is not something that's so removed from their own life, they are more engaged in, um, and I think really just work on the project more if we're talking about project-based learning. The other, the other thing, if I could just say one more thing about this sure. question of civic engagement and civic participation, because it's something I'm just more and more aware of. I think we're mm -hmm. all, you know, we all evolve even as adults in what we're interested in and what we sure. notice. But um, one of the things that's very powerful about the humanities and that I'm realizing more and more in this role, which I've been in, you know, for five days is that functionally humanists really take statements and turn them into questions. That's something that a new friend of mine really was, was talking about. And I think mm -hmm. that's just a powerful, powerful articulation. What does that mean to take a statement and turn it into a question? Civic engagement, critical pedagogy, the, the civil rights movement itself, Freedom Summer, all educational movements that are embedded in social change start with observing the world around you and mm -hmm. asking questions. And it's the, the pursuit of those answers that kind of change comes from. So mm -hmm. the other piece about being involved in civic education or what can teachers do is really honor and make space for observation, a kind of science skill, mm -hmm. but the critical questioning what do we see? How did that happen? Who decided? What is my role and responsibility? What is the opportunity? How do I make the opportunity more like what I want it to be? Those mm -hmm. are the kinds of critical questions, both at the heart of the humanities, but also at what enables civic engagement. And I think it's something teachers can do as a practice on a day-to-day -day basis. Sure. And it seems like when you have statements as opposed to questions, it's um, kind of the Socratic method, like it's, it, it starts a conversation instead of kind of ending it with just this, you know, kind of monolithic statement that's ha just hanging out there. Um, one of the things that I love that you have said is that design is a kind of hidden curriculum. I wonder if you could kind of talk about that and kind of tell us what you mean by that. Jean Anion is a, is a writer and educator. She wrote a piece oh, probably in maybe 75, 78, um, called uh, about the, about the hidden curriculum and the nature of work. And she went into a series of fifth grade classrooms where the students came from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And each of those classrooms, the nature of what the students were being asked to do was very different. So students coming from the lowest socioeconomic background were basically told, you know, do what I say and repeat it back to me, essentially a mm -hmm. kind of direct instruction. Right. Students coming from a middle class background were basically given a multiple choice test. There was one right answer and the job was to find the answer and the teacher knew the answer. Sure. But at the highest, the highest socioeconomic uh, background of students, those students were basically told, this is the system, now rewrite the system, project based you know, what, what are the pieces and now you mm -hmm. remake it, you be in charge, what do you think we should be learning about? You know, 
those things are not explicit. You don't walk into a classroom and a teacher says, we're gonna do direct instruction, or this is essentially, I have the right answer and you have to find it. It's all implicit until you see it and then you suddenly understand. So I think that that really, that concept of the hidden curriculum, there's a mm -hmm. hidden curriculum everywhere. Space, the physicality of space and how it's designed is a hidden curriculum. You can go into a classroom with centers mm -hmm. and it signals we're going to be doing different kinds of things. We expect different kinds of behaviors in different areas of this room. When you walk into a classroom with straight rows, everybody facing the front of the room, mm -hmm. that is a hidden implied curriculum. But what it's saying is come in, sit down, face the front because the teacher is the expert. And there may be a good reason to do that as long as it's as long as it's intentional. And I think for me, the issue about design and a hidden curriculum is if there is a reason you are choosing to design something in a way mm -hmm. to be as explicit as possible that that's the purpose. Sure. And airport's another great example. You know, mm -hmm. those long hallways tell you go, 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 go. And then right. they start putting up shops and seats. And now the curriculum in an airport is linger, spend money, be social. Um, I think the issue is we have such limited, in the role of an educator, we, we really have limited time with our young people or mm -hmm. our adults if we're doing work with adults. And so to be as thoughtful as possible, to be as explicit as possible about what you hope to have happen, mm -hmm. you're not gonna make it happen, but let's make it as likely as possible. That's the difference between a kind of hidden curriculum and being explicit. It's not only that you think about it, but that you say it, that you show it, that you make it as transparent as possible so that the people who are participating understand that and can and uh, don't just kind of have to guess. I'm not really sure what we're doing here today. Sure. So just to kind of sum up what you're saying is when there's one aspect where, for example, a classroom teacher, the way they design their classroom is communicating something, whether they intend it to or not, to their students. But also, would you say it's really important to kind of involve the students in the design process rather than just kind of have the be kind of chalk and talk, like the where they just are accepting your design? The question of when and how students participate is one of the most profound questions a teacher has to wrestle with on a daily basis if they're paying attention. Mm -hmm. I don't think you necessarily have to have students be involved in everything all the time. You know, in fact, John Dewey wrote a book which then was interpreted that students should learn by doing. Mm -hmm. And then you'd go into a classroom and it was a kind of free for all. And then he had to write another book and be like, that's not actually what I meant. And if you read John Dewey's work very closely, in my opinion, you know, what he's basically saying is, if you are going to be a facilitator for an educative or educational experience, you actually have to be extremely thoughtful about what it means to be a guide and to be a facilitator. You still have to have an agenda. So I'm sure. not a big fan of what everything, what everything a kid says in a classroom or a person says, like that's the gospel and then we do what they want. I think if you are in the role of being a teacher and you believe that what you wanna do is facilitate an experience, not necessarily be the expert, Again, it depends on the moment. The most important thing is to be extremely intentional about the agenda that you do have. Sure. Not to know everything, but to pick. 
because mm -hmm. you cannot do everything. You can't do everything well, and it's also not fair to the students. You, again, you have limited time with them. Sure. What are you gonna get done? So I don't think you necessarily need to have students shape the whole classroom. Right. But you should pick what you think is gonna be most important and get their input. Sure, that makes total sense. So it's been two years since the graphic novel you created with Eyes of the Cat illustration, No Small Plants, was released. Um, I'm just thinking like two years out, what impact do you feel like it's had on the students and educators who've had the uh, pleasure of getting to read it? So No Small Plans was created um, by and for the Chicago Architecture Center. I was the vice president of education at the time. And the uh, CEO was looking for suggestions for something the organization could do in honor of its 50th anniversary. Mm -hmm. And I suggested that we take a 1911 textbook called Wacker's Manual mm -hmm. and kind of reimagine it for the 20, 21st century and to create a graphic novel but really carry forward the themes, vision, and mission of that 19, early 1900s textbook. Mm -hmm. So what that 1900s textbook do, it basically said, one, we believe that all young people should understand the building blocks of their city. And two, we should make sure that young people understand it is only through their united civic efforts that the city will be great. Those were the ideas that I kind of latched onto and were inspired by. Mm -hmm. So flash forward, 2016, we cobbled together some money from some great places like Microsoft and people interested in civic tech and mm -hmm. civic engagement, the American Planning Association, and we announced a commission uh, students helped us pick artists, it was Eyes of the Cat, and then we spent a year developing a graphic novel that has three chapters. It's set in the past, 1928, the present, and the future. Mm -hmm. And in each chapter, a group of young people has to wrestle with um, issues of design, where they live and they learn. But the thing about that whole novel, like if you just pick it up and you have no idea about the background and you have no idea about this other history, Hopefully you can just pick up the novel and it's a great read. Sure. But if you are a teacher, that novel, every single page has been aligned to a design brief that teachers helped create. Mm -hmm. And every single page is annotated with links to source material. Mm -hmm. And the last thing is that entire novel is designed to align with the C3 curriculum, which is the National Social Studies curriculum. And it enables teachers to um, deliver on a civics education mandate here in Illinois. So you could just hopefully pick up the novel and nerd out about Chicago or love the mm -hmm. fact that diverse teens are being represented and you get to see the city and the neighborhoods through their eyes. But if you're a teacher, we tried to make it as easy as possible to use. Two years later, it's 2019. The graphic novel has been um, included now in more than 100 classrooms as part of the standing annual curriculum. That's so great. And teachers are using it for projects from fourth grade all the way through 12th grade, and those projects are extraordinarily diverse and fascinating. Um, there's a teacher at Lane Tech High School who used no small plans to enable his students to study the 77 community areas. Because he's a computer science teacher, they did 3D printing, and he's also having them develop basically a portfolio for each one of those community areas. On the far southeast side, there's mm -hmm. a sixth grade teacher. She used No Small Plans to help her students become community historians, and they developed a set of recommendations for their aldermen. 
-hmm. that alderman is looking at this school's recommendations for what to do with an abandoned steel mill property. It's one of the largest pieces of undeveloped property in Chicago. That's just two examples. Uh, Lynn Bloom High School does now, uh, they've been doing an annual um, urban planning fair, mm -hmm. and No Small Plans is one of the options that students can use. One of the students actually wrote a chapter four for No Small Plans. So it's been a jumping off point for very different kinds of projects, but all tied back to what's my role and responsibility in designing the places where I live and learn. Sure. You know, I was, uh, when I read No Small Plans, I was struck by the third section, you know, set in 2211. And, you know, you have teenagers sitting on the city council's planning commission. Um, I imagine that a lot of politicians and a lot of adults in general kind of fail to think about young adults as having an important voice in how the world is governed and how it's designed and functions. I mean, why do you feel that the voice of young people is so important? Well, the, the first thing is they are the most affected by decisions that they often have very little input into. You know, young mm -hmm. person, if you think about yourself as a teenager, you wake up, you go to school, you look around at the world, and you basically think this is how the world is. You don't necessarily know that it's changed before or that it will change again or that you could actually affect how it's changed. So the first thing is they're impacted by it. Mm -hmm. um, I think the second thing is they are often much more ambitious for what's possible for a community than adults are. And I think the climate crisis is great evidence of that. I think, mm -hmm. the, I think the gun violence epidemic is great evidence of that. We mm -hmm. see that young people are able to envision and expect great possibilities, transformative changes to call for that. And they have a kind of, um, I don't know if the right word is moral, but they, they have a kind of authority about what the world is that they want. Sure. If in fact the climate crisis is going to be as devastating to the planet, you know, I have a nine-year-old son. He'll be 39 when that happens. Sure. So shouldn't he have some say and shouldn't we value what he expects? Now, that's a young, younger child, but by the time you're a teenager, you have enormous capabilities to make things happen. And, and whether you look at these movements right now, um, the No Cop Academy in Chicago led by young people, Black Lives Matter, young, led by young people, the climate mm -hmm. crisis protests led by young people, the civil rights movement, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, those were all young people who expected more, expected change faster, and called for it with a, a moral clarity that I think can get lost when you're an adult. Um, so No Small Plans was in 2016, and then you have a brand new project, a graphic novel entitled Washington by and by. Um, can you tell us about that project? I would love to tell you about that project. Of course, it's very fresh. The novel is not finished yet. I'm reviewing artistic um, pencils and inks every half hour, it seems, because we're sure. in high gear. Washington by and by is a brand new graphic novel that follows the adventures of diverse teens from around the state in Washington mm -hmm. who get convened for a summer program about community planning. The project was completely inspired by No Small Plans. So people in Washington said, why don't we have a tool like that that's in a medium that teens can appreciate, that teachers can get put to use, but can take on serious subjects. So um, in January 
uh, I and my team found out we'd been picked to work on the project. Wow. And so it's the creative team of Eyes of the Cat again, Devin Maudsley and Casey Beyer. We love working with each other. Uh, I would work with them on anything. They're amazingly talented and really understand young people. Mm-hmm. So Washington by and by will basically cover the course of a summer program. And we have young people from four different parts of the state. And at the heart of the issue is housing. So the housing issue of displacement and development is unbelievably acute in the Pacific Northwest in some ways much more intense, much quicker than what we're even seeing in Chicago. And it's very intense in Chicago. So the the Washington chapter of the American Planning Association wanted to have a new tool that they could get out as quickly as possible to help people think about planning and housing and make it for diverse teens. Mm-hmm. Here's where we're at. We're closing a Kickstarter campaign on June 19th, 2019. If we raise those funds, and we're close, we're getting closer and closer every day. If we raise those Mm -hmm. funds, Washington By and By will be published online and available for free for anybody who wants to use it. If we exceed the goal, we'll do things like translate it into Spanish, for example. Sure. Um, There's going to be a website resource to make it as easy as possible for people to use. But this is essentially an open source, mass education, powered by technology attempt to make community design available to really diverse young people who otherwise might not have access to it. Sure. Um, Another thing I read that you had said was that uh, making graphic novels has been some of the most fun and most important work you've ever done. I'd love to hear more about your experience um, creating these works, like how it's impacted you, um, kind of the fun you've had or some of the struggles or both. So this is now my second graphic novel project. And on the one hand, it's enabled me to pull together a lot of the tools as an educator I've loved putting to work through the design process. So for both No Small Plans and Washington By and By, I was able to do a series of community conversations with teachers Mm -hmm. and students and policymakers and funders to essentially explore the question, well, what's most worthwhile to know and experience, and in the case of Washington, by and by, about housing and community planning. Mm -hmm. So the design brief was the first part of the process, and you have to listen to a lot of diverse voices and then create a brief that can inform a purely creative process. So then the second part of the process, and this is the very, very close collaborative work with Devin and Casey, is then we really kind of swim in that design brief and think about, well, what would some characters be? And what would the tensions be? And how do those characters relate to each other? And really develop very rich backgrounds, some of which you will never see in the novel, but we mm-hmm. try to figure out, well, what would the, what kind of music would the characters like and what's their sense of humor and do they eat breakfast or not and what would they wear and, and how would they respond to this idea? So we spend a lot of time thinking about the characters and how they're wired and their motivations. Sure. And then we'll go ahead and map out the, map out the beats of the story. So for mm-hmm. me in my role, I'm not an artist, I don't do the drawing, but as a kind of, I guess it's most, maybe mostly like being a movie director. A lot of what mm-hmm. I do is talk about what we want to emphasize, what we want to pull back on. Are we seeing a whole mobile home or trailer? Are we just seeing part of it? Do we want to see kids' faces? Are we slowing down, speeding up? How we're pacing the story, which Devin and Casey 
translate. And the other piece is we do an enormous amount of visual research. So Casey is a superb um, visual researcher. And so every single frame is based on a real place. If the young people are heading, as they are in Washington by and by, on Route 90 from east to west, and they are going to cross an um, overpass, mm -hmm. that overpass is going to look right. It's going to have the right kinds of trees around it. We're going to make sure that if there's clear cutting, it's really there. So that's something that I think harkens back to my historical sensibilities, which is sure. to be as authentic as possible. And honestly, this is just a medium that I'm in, I'm in love with as a mass education tool. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it can be really rich because you can read just the words, you can do character analysis, but you can also do visual analysis. And visual literacy is something that young people today are extremely capable of. That's interesting because I was wondering, and I, I'd love to hear what you think about this, um, you know, as a teacher and, you know, I'm sure a lot of teachers feel this way, student engagement is can be really tough. I mean, sometimes students love the medium um, and they're really engaged and sometimes not so much. Um, and do you feel like graphic novels, I mean, also I would say graphic novels, I think have been viewed as some kind of quote unquote low art, which I think is completely mm -hmm. ridiculous. That's right. But do you think that the medium of graphic novel is more engaging as a curricular tool in a classroom setting? Well, I think for students, the low art and possibly subversive nature of graphic novels is an asset, frankly, oh, whether or not they know that. But um, and I think there are real problems with the genre. I think it's been often male dominated in terms of the art and design and artistic direction. I think that there's a you know, it's as problematic as any of our other genres. Mm -hmm. But what I do like about it is that you can really see yourself. So if you have a character, it's visual, it's not just the words. And I think for young people that struggle in school, they do need help learning how to, how to read a novel, if they, a graphic novel, if they haven't been exposed to it, adults do also. Mm -hmm. um, some of the best work for educators using graphic novels is actually pairing novels. So taking something like No Small Plans, which is graphic, and pairing it with something like Kevin Koval's A People's History of Chicago, which is a very profound and beautiful poetry book. There are extraordinarily talented educators who know much more about this than I do. In fact, um, Eric Callenborn is a a Chicago, a Chicago metro area based educator. I've learned mm -hmm. so much just from following his, um, his Instagram account and his tweets. There are communities of educators and especially librarians who were very early adopters of this medium as mm -hmm. a way to enable young people to see themselves and engage in, in stories and humanities experiences. Um, and I've learned sure. a lot, a lot from them. This is not the only curricular tool you've developed. You've cr created quite a few. I mean, how does it differ working in the medium of a graphic novel versus other curricular tools, more, more traditional ones or more novel and interesting ones? I've developed, I developed the first workbook for the Chicago Public Library Foundation called A Walk with an Expedition that was paper-based and it was a series of activities, so very, very traditional. Mm -hmm. um, I've written books and essays that are very didactic. Uh, some of the most engaging things I've done have been some very creative websites and interactive pieces. Mm -hmm. The thing that I love about the graphic novel, for me personally, has been 
the level of intentionality around every frame and every line that feels different than technology um, that you can hold in your hand. Um, and that and that has an appeal and it can be really accessible. I can hand mm -hmm. you something. A kid can hand no small plans to somebody sitting next to him on a on the bus, on the metro, on the train. Um, I think they all have their merits. Again, it gets back to what is the intent of your design? Who are the people that are going to use it? What are you going to do in the limited time and space that you have? Um, but for me right now, this medium is really great. I will just say one thing, though. I went to Detroit recently and uh, was absolutely just like gobsmacked by the Diego Rivera murals at the Detroit Institute of Art. And of course, I'm texting Devin and Casey because we that's just we're on text all the time. And I was like, I don't know, guys, I think that this is just a big graphic novel I'm looking at. And uh, maybe the next version for us is a big is a big public mural. So, you know, I'm learning and growing, too. It's such a privilege to have this kind of experience as an adult. I think that, you know, it's a privilege. It's absolutely a privilege. It's a privilege that I get to do it because I have the time, space, financial wherewithal, mm -hmm. social capital to get to do a project like this. So I feel very privileged that I'm getting to grow and learn about things that I've appreciated. Sure. Um, and I also feel some compulsion to advocate for access and to use the medium for the things that I guess I care about. And work on all the time. One thing I would think is really interesting is that it seems like even though you have done so much curriculum design, that's what your PhD is in, um, how important to you is it to, to push into areas that are kind of uncomfortable or new for you? I mean, like, assuming you didn't, that these, these two graphic novels are the first ones you've ever mm -hmm. created. I mean, that seems like, kind of, I mean, how important is going out of your comfort zone as, as a person that does this type of work into something like using Kickstarter and making graphic novels and working with um, visual illustrators? Yeah. You know, I don't think I picked the graphic novel as a medium to, to grow by. Like, wasn't like, I want to try to do something I've never done before. That really sure. wasn't the, the process. I think the process was, was much more opportunistic. How do, we, how do we reach as many young people? And what would that look like? And then mm -hmm. feeling like a graphic novel was a perfect fit for something visual and um, and uh, thinking about the novel fit, architecture, the built environment, sure. representing diverse young people, telling stories, um, mm. being a jumping off point for a critical conversation. But I think as a white woman who's grown up with parents that went to college, as somebody who's Jewish, as somebody who was born in New Mexico and moved around growing sure. up primarily on the East Coast, you know, I feel very aware that the more I can be self-aware and, and humble and um, learn and grow and be honest about that, that that's very important to me personally, and very important in the role that I'm in now in Illinois Humanities. And I'll give you a great example of that. You know, I'm somebody that's worked with lots of different kinds of people. And we had a, act we had a workshop, training workshop here at Illinois Humanities on Friday. 
And again, it's like my third day in the office and there's sure. this workshop going on and the room is filled with 20 people from 20 different kinds of organizations from um, a, a Haitian American museum to people who are writing with young people in the justice system to people who are filming erotica, like very mm -hmm. different kinds of people, people who are running uh, a program to empower block clubs, right? So very different kinds of people. And one of the things Illinois Humanities does is try to help people use the humanities to have emergent and engaged conversations. One of the activities that they were facilitating around was they put a picture and everybody looked at the photograph and we just had to talk about what we see, right? So back to this idea of observing and surfacing questions. Sure. So we're all looking at the picture, we're all talking about it. And one of the things that, you know, that, you know, it's a very rich conversation. And one of the things I said in passing was, you know, I wonder what the photographer was thinking about the fact that like one, one of the men in the picture is white and he's in a suit and he's looking at this other person who's mm -hmm. black and we'd talked about maybe that person was blind or not. And he's, you know, and that person is, is asking for help. Sure. And a woman next to me said, you know, I didn't assume that that person was black. That was a really important moment for me to ask myself, am I looking carefully? Where mm -hmm. did that assumption come from? What is that based on? And you can bet that like moving forward, I'm gonna be much more self-aware about visually when I'm looking at things, am I being careful mm -hmm. or am I just making assumptions that I've carried with me from all the other experiences I've had. And so, you know, that's not something I'm proud of, but that is something that stretches me, asks me to reflect, try to become a, a better person, more mm -hmm. aware and more able to think about various possibilities instead of just one set of possibilities, I guess. Sure. That, you know, I, recently I was talking to a, a group of UIC professors and we were kind of talking about that more and more college is not necessarily a path for every student. Um, and it is a path for many students, but not necessarily a required path for students. And we were talking about kind of the role of liberal arts. And my thought was liberal arts does not guarantee you a job necessarily in the world, but it does kind of make better humans. What are your thoughts about that? I think that the, the revolution in understanding education as a means to a job is extremely problematic. Sure. I think it's disturbing and upsetting because for those people that are already most likely, that are least likely to get jobs, mm -hmm. it's just one more way in which the richness of possibility is being reduced and limited for them. Sure. So if you're in a house where there's books and people are reading newspapers and talking about those kinds of things, then maybe school isn't the only place where you learn how to read critically and maybe school isn't the only place where you have experience debating ideas and hearing people's ideas that are different from you. But if you're not in that situation, if your family is under duress, if your family is unhoused, if you are in a place where the adults are working and it's hard for them to be present, then school becomes at all levels much, much more important for enabling a democratic society. 
So the question of does school, well, what if school doesn't really matter for some kids and specifically college? I think that's fair. I think that everybody ought to have the opportunity to choose, but sure. we know some things for sure. We know that MOOCs or online college is worst for the students who have the least social capital, who have sure. come from the, the um, most limited kind of school experiences because what college does is it puts you around people that are different from you. Right. It puts you around people who are going to have lots of different kinds of jobs and experiences. And the humanities makes room for reflection about what it means to be human and exposes you to the ways of understanding your, your worth in the world and what kind of life you wanna have. Turn statements into questions, right? Mm -hmm. the, to examine life. Now, that doesn't mean you have to have the humanities in order to get a job. Right. Maybe you don't. But if you do have the humanities, you will, I think, be able to analyze. You will be able to have discussions. You will be able to consider other people's perspectives. You will know and perhaps deeply understand that most people's lives and experiences are not like yours. Sure. Um, but the bigger issue to me is this question of what is the purpose of education? Mm -hmm. And what I worry about is the, the valuing of education for certain kinds of students, but the hidden curriculum there being that actually college is really about getting a job. One of the things I think is also really interesting, especially for like the educators that are listening. So you launched No Small Plans on Kickstarter mm -hmm. and you have nine days as of this recording <laughs> um, for Washington Buy and Buy on Kickstarter. As an educator, as a creator, what has it been like to use something like Kickstarter as a platform to, to both promote and fund these projects? Kickstarter is one of a number of crowdsourcing platforms. For No Small Plans, the thing that I loved about Kickstarter was Kickstarter enabled jumpstarting a conversation. And so I was really clear and careful when I was at the Chicago Architecture Center to say, hey, the number one goal of this campaign is actually to build a community of people who are aware of these ideas and understand that we're going to try to do some work to close the civic engagement gap. Sure. And the second role would be to raise money. Now, the Kickstarter campaign for No Small Plans was successful and we raised mm -hmm. great money and we got to print lots of copies and they're in every single Chicago Public Library, among other things. With Washington by and by, it's very similar as the partner because our partners are in Washington that will be using the book. It was a very similar goal. Number mm -hmm. one, to use the platform and vehicle as a way to raise awareness mm -hmm. and, and also to raise some funds. Um, the second campaign has just been more challenging mm -hmm. uh, to kind of get the traction that we were hoping to, but that also speaks to the fact that the initiative is coming from a set of volunteers who are different parts of the city. They, sure. th this is completely new for them. Mm -hmm. Social media is not their forte. And, um, and I'm, I don't know how many states away. I'm far away here in Illinois right. with my most robust network and set of relationships. Um, but Kickstarter is great. It's not going to be right for everything. It's sure. great for graphic novels because there's mm -hmm. a big graphic novel community on Kickstarter already who are always kind of keeping their eyes out for that. And it's a specialty sport. 
So mm-hmm. I'm sure that if you're on Etsy or if you're on um, Donors Choose or if you're on um, Indiegogo, each of those have their own peculiarities. For me, I've really enjoyed the Kickstarter community and being part of that and keeping fingers crossed we can get to that $6,000 goal by June 19th. So speaking of that, I'm just curious about where can people find you? Where are you personally, Illinois Humanities, um, No Small Plans, Washington by and by? Great. Um, so a couple of things. You could follow me on Twitter at at Lion Gabrielle. So L-Y-O-N capital G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E. So that's the easiest way to find me on social media. I kind of bumble around Facebook and get lost. I don't really know how to use that one. Mm-hmm. Um, Illinois Humanities, which is my home base and of which I am the biggest champion, and this is my full-time beloved job. You can always find me at Illinois Humanities, so we're just at ilhumanities.org. We have a major, major event coming up in August about envisioning justice, and I would love to talk to anybody about that and have people come out and see the work of these extraordinary partner organizations that are doing work that sometimes never gets seen, Mm -hmm. and it's incredible, and they've been doing it for decades. So you can ping me on social media. Mm -hmm. Um, For Washington By and By, go as soon as possible, go often, share that out, and Mm -hmm. that's at um, just bit.ly.org capital Washington, capital B for buy, and capital B for buy. So Washington buy and buy. Um, You can Google it on Kickstarter, search it on Kickstarter, you'll find it. But I think the most important things is just to like keep asking good questions and staying in conversation and making an effort to talk to people that maybe you wouldn't normally talk to and see what happens. Sure. So we'll make sure and we're going to get those links for everybody in the show notes. And Gabe, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time, especially in your first week in your new role to uh, talk to me. And I, I know everybody listening really appreciates it. And I certainly do. JD, thank you so much and best of luck. Thanks for listening to the Depth and Light podcast. I'd like to say thanks again to Dr. Gabrielle Lyon and Illinois Humanities. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. For more info about what we're up to, check out our website at depthandlight.com. That's D-E-P-T-H-A-N-D-L-I-G-H-T.com. Or follow us on Instagram or Twitter at the handle at depthandlight.